Thank you, Scott, for leading us so faithfully in singing. I think Jeff knows how to disciple those to take his place when he's not here. Jeff is in the cruise, so he'll be back with a big smile and a few extra pounds. But uh, we'll be glad to have him. But uh, what joy it is to have Scott lead us this morning. Friends, we're going through a series through the book of Colossians. And at uh, Central Baptist, we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. Therefore, every word matters. And every word applies to our life today. So we're going to consider today Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. If you would open your Bible, we'll read the word of the Lord for us today. Here's what the Lord says he that is Christ is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. A few years ago, Indy and I were traveling to Brazil, and we were in an airplane. And flight is about to uh, begin descending, so I was going to use the restroom. I decided to go forward and use the restroom. Somebody slips in front of me and gets in the bathroom before me. My very calm self goes up to the to the flight attendant and says, I, this gentleman just got in front of me. Uh, I, was, I was making my way to the bathroom. Uh, to which the flight attendant replies, that gentleman is the pilot. <laughs> okay. You can use the bathroom. I can wait. Right? I mean, th there, is a, there is an order of importance here between myself, who is just at the mercy of others flying a plane, and he who pilots the plane. And, and the order is very clear. The pilot takes preeminence over me in an airplane. He needs to fly the plane. Everybody's lives depend on the pilot's ability to fly the plane. So, so when the pilot has a need, we can wait. This happens in our spiritual life sometimes, right? That we, 
that we think sometimes that we are the kings of our lives, the king of the universe. We think that we're the kings of our destiny, but we are not. Jesus is. And when Jesus takes the lead, we yield. At times, we may be deceived by the appearance of autonomy apart from Christ. But Paul would remind us that it is in Christ that we move. It is in Christ that we breathe. This sounds like very basic things, right? And it is in Christ that we have our beings. Apart from Christ, we are nothing. Our text for today is an early church hymn. And this hymn is like a bombardment of fireworks crying out, Jesus is Lord. And this is the point of the sermon today. Okay, The point of the sermon is that Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of the universe. He's Lord over the stars. He's Lord over every human being that has ever lived and will ever live. He's Lord over every aspect of creation. He's Lord over the church. And He's Lord over you, whether you know Him or not. Sometimes we just need to stop and be awestruck by the awesomeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not every sermon needs to immediately teach us how to practically live Monday morning. Sermons also need to teach us how to live for eternity. So, sometimes we need to stop and just consider the object of our worship, whom is Jesus Christ, whom is awesome, in every way. Now, I'm not saying this sermon will have no practical application, but it is good for us to be reminded that preaching should primarily lead us to praise. And then practical applications will follow. We should behold Christ in his greatness and then live like him. Preaching is part of the worship service. Our worship is not divided between worship and preaching. We worship the Lord through singing, through praying, yes, through the Scripture reading, through observing His ordinances, but we worship the Lord also through the preaching. He's being exalted. So we do this together. I have a role in preaching to display Christ to you to magnify Christ before you, but you have a role in preaching as well. To worship Christ as your Lord. And this is my hope today, that through this message, we would say, oh, how I love to praise my Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how great Jesus Christ is being depicted before me. What a great Savior he is. So my outline for the message today is simple. Three points. Jesus is Lord over the universe. One. Number two, Jesus is Lord over the church. And number three, 
Jesus is Lord over you. So let's consider first, Jesus is Lord over the universe. Now, remember what we talked about last week, right? Uh, the gospel is increasing. And the Colossians were experiencing the increase of the gospel. And, and Paul summarizes the gospel and, and this incredible message through a transference. Right? The Colossians were transferred from a domain, the domain of darkness, the control of Satan, slavery to sin, dependence, full dependence on the flesh. To a kingdom. To the kingdom of Christ. Now, this passage is going to, this passage today is going to help us understand what this kingdom is. And the first question, the first answer to this question, what is the kingdom of Christ that we're being transferred to? It is the whole universe. The goal of creation is that the whole universe would turn to Christ and praise Him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It is not only humans who proclaim the excellencies of Christ. All of creation does that. So Christ, Christ is ruling, and His ruling will ultimately bring all of creation under His domination. Now, when I was a kid... One of my favorite games to play with my cousins was Risk, right? So when you play Risk, uh, you're, you're given a, a little objective card. And sometimes the objective card is to conquer a continent or to conquer, you know, this part of the world. But when you're playing against cousins, you don't care about that. You want to conquer the whole world, right? So ultimately, our objective was always to dominate everything conquer everybody, humiliate the other cousins, and make sure that they have no cards left, right? It's, it's the whole idea, airplanes going against one army, one soldier, right? That was our goal. And we would play, sometimes our games would last for days. And then, oh, it's so glorious when you actually win and you dominate your cousins, right? And then you walk away and you realize that you really didn't win anything. You just played a game, and you walk away empty-handed, just with your pride a little bit overinflated, right? But Jesus rules over the universe in a different way. Jesus rules over the universe, and he actually owns it. Every sphere of the universe belongs to him, and Jesus has rights over this universe. And where do these rights come from? Well, who has the right to plant their flag on the universe and say, mine? Jesus does, but why? Well, look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Literally, the icon, right? You know the computer icon where you go on the desktop and you click on it and a whole program opens? That's, that's the word that's being used here. He is the image Right? That gives us access to the wholeness, to the fullness of God. Another way we could say this is that Jesus reflects who God is perfectly. Why? Because He's God Himself. Christ is the Word of God and the wisdom of God. 
Christ is the perfect representation of God. If you know him, you know God. He is also the model for us who we're called to image ourselves. Christ is the image of God, and we must be the image of Christ. You, you know the, the bracelets that were popular a couple of decades ago? They were very popular when I was in high school. Every Christian had it. What would Jesus do? WWJD. That's a great bracelet, right? I'll date you if I ask you if you had one in high school, so I won't ask that. That's a great question, right? That, that's not the only question. Coupled with what would Jesus do, we need to ask the question, what has Jesus done? Because ultimately we rest in his work, right? But the question for a Christian, what would Jesus do, is a great question. Why? Because we image God rightly once we model our lives before the perfect image of God, who is Christ. For this reason, when the disciples asked Jesus, Show us the Father, he said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus and the Father are one. So Jesus, being God, has rights over the whole universe. But not only that, back in verse 15, he also says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this phrase can sound a little puzzling, right? How can Jesus be eternal, the eternally begotten Son of God? And at the same time be called the firstborn, right? How can these two concepts go together? And this is an important question of biblical interpretation. First of all, I would say, let's look broadly in the Bible. What does the Bible say broadly about Jesus? Well, the Bible clearly says that Jesus is not part of the created order. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, predating creation. John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I am eternally God. Another way that we could render this text is, before Abraham was, I have always been. Jesus is eternal. Revelation 21, 6. These verses that in the prophet Isaiah are used to refer to God are now used here to refer to Jesus. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus encompasses everything. But also, the immediate context gives us even more insight, right? Look at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus created all things, and if He created all things, He cannot be part of the created order. The created order contained all created things. Outside of the created order is that which created all things. So we know that firstborn of all creation does not refer to Jesus as a created being. Even further, 
Look at verse 18. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of the dead. Now, this cannot be referring to his birth. This is actually referring to his resurrection. So we see the word firstborn here being used figuratively. So, firstborn in verse 16 is likewise being used in a figurative way. So what does Paul mean with firstborn? What does Paul mean by using the word firstborn? Well, Psalm 89 verse 27 helps us here because the same word is used to refer to King David, whom we know was not the firstborn of Jesse. And here's what the psalm says of David. I will make him the firstborn. What does that mean? Keep reading. The highest of the kings of the earth. Here it is. What does it mean for Jesus to be the firstborn of all creation? According to the context, being the firstborn means he is the greatest king of all. So he images God and he rules over creation as king. In other words, he has the inheritance rights as the firstborn of the eternal king of heaven. All that belongs to God belongs to Christ. He has the right to do with creation as he pleases. He has the right to orchestrate creation as he wills. We don't approach Jesus wondering if he's powerful. We don't approach Jesus wondering if he can do something about our lives, about our problems, about our concerns. We approach Jesus as the King Eternal, the King to whom every king bows, the King to whom creation serves, the King to whom all other things promise and give their allegiance. In verse 16, this king is also creator. And what has he created? He has created all things. Not only has he created all things, all things were created for him. So he has rights over creation. This includes you and I. And we have obligations towards him. You see that? The verse says, all things were created by him. All things were created through Him, and all things were created for Him. That means all of the created order owes Jesus allegiance, worship, praise. Whether you're a Christian or not, you owe praise to Jesus. So it's better that you do it willingly, joyfully. And it's a great opportunity for us to do that Today, he has rights over creation. If he created it, he owns it. And he can do with it as he pleases. In other words, everything ex that exists 
belongs to Christ. Listen to how Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper expresses this concept. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Christ looks at creation and says, It all belongs to me. It all exists for my glory. You know, this week on social media, some of my relatives started sharing a YouTube link of a composition that my grandfather, who was a musician, made. He wrote this composition in 1954. It's a waltz. And he named it the Nice Waltz. It's my grandmother's name. He wrote a piece, he wrote an orchestral piece, and he dedicated it to my grandmother. It was sweet to hear it. It was sweet to to think about the relationship between my grandfather and my grandmother, who in, in in that time, they were probably about my age. It was sweet to think about the love and the care. And it was sweet to think about my grandfather expressing creativity to display his love towards my grandmother. But why does my grandfather have the right to dedicate that piece of music to my grandmother? Because he wrote it. So he can decide what he will do with it. So he decided to honor someone he loved with it. He who owns something has rights. He who creates something has ownership over it and has the right to do with it as they please. And what does Christ do with his creation? Look at verse 17. He sustains it. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I am convinced, I am convinced, right? Just now, there's a great telescope many times more powerful than the Hubble telescope being sent into space. I think it's called the James Webb 2 or something like that. And, and, and what we're going to learn about space is going to be grandiose in the next several years. But I am convinced that all this space exploration and, and all this wondering about the stars and the cosmos and the universe will un, one day one day amount to all the scientists realizing this is all pointing to Christ. He owns it all, right? I really believe that scientists are climbing a mountain and we're on the top of that mountain already. Some of them are with us because they believe, they believe the word. But, but I do, I, I truly believe that it is through understanding Christ that we will understand how the universe works. It is through understanding the word of God that we will understand how the universe works. So our scientific discoveries must submit to the revealed word of God. They must submit to what God presents to us in his word. So ultimately, our question about the universe, about life, about all things, has to be filtered and answered through the word of God. And how is the universe sustained? Jesus Christ does it. Jesus Christ has always done it. When Jesus Christ was a baby, 
And Mary held him in her arms. He was holding her in his arms. And not only was he holding her in his arms, he was holding all things in his arms. So friends, we need to realize that if we are here today, it's because Jesus sustains us. If we live, it's because Jesus wills. If this church is here today, it's because Jesus wills. If this planet is here today, it's because Jesus wills. It is because of his power that all things hold together. So what are some of the ways that we can actually uh, live out some of these principles? Well, first of all, remember that Jesus images God perfectly, but we're called to image God as well. When God creates men and women, humanity, in, in, in the beginning, he, he makes this statement in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created in the image of God. So everything we do, everything we do must Speak clearly of who God is. Our lives, our lives reveal to the world who God is. So the way we behave, the way we interact with, other, with others, the, the, what we do with our money, what we do with our time, the way we raise our families, the way we speak, our choice of words, whether or not we're going to be compassionate, kind, gentle, filled with love, patient, firm, just. All of these things will either speak of a God who is good and true, or they will deny that. And friends, humans only thrive when they rightly image God. We're called to do that. But here's the reality. There is only one who has perfectly imaged God, and that is Jesus Christ. All of us will fail at imaging God. Why? Because we all have fallen short of His glory. So, yes, it is right for us to work hard to live out this image of God that has been imprinted on us from beginning, whether we're Christians or not. But if we don't come to Christ, if we don't come to the perfect image of God, confess our shortcomings, our failures, our failures, our sins, our rebellion, our transgression of God's law. And recognize that we need to be transformed by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. We will always and continuously fall short of rightly representing God. But friends, when we come to Christ and we confess our sins and we rest in Him and not in our own power and work. Friends, God, God increases our righteousness and, and He helps us walk and to, be, to walk with Christ and be more like Christ from one degree of glory to the next through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in us. So in this lifetime, we'll never perfectly image God, but we can progressively, more and more, conquer areas in our lives where the image of God is being marred by the sin, by the sin of Adam and by our own sin. 
So we must come to God in faith and trust in the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. Here's another application. Uh, This is an early Christian hymn, right? And this hymn should teach us about our hymnody, about the hymns that we ourselves sing. The, 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 The Bible, the New Testament, is filled with New Testament hymns. We see them in different places. And here's one thing that is common to every Christian hymn in the Bible or hymns that were sung by the early church. They magnify Christ. Let me just read through some of these verses very quickly and just listen to how often the word he, him, his, this pronoun is being repeated. All every time referring to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what the early church sang. They sang about Christ. So our hymns, our songs, our spiritual songs must paint a big picture of Christ. So here's one of the values. Here's one of the principles that we live by in Central Baptist Church. Our worship from the singing to the preaching, from the reading of Scripture to the observance of the Lord's ordinances are painting a big picture of Christ. We embrace Christ-centered worship. We magnify Christ. And, And every time something in our church tries to compete with Christ, we work to downplay that and exalt Christ. We look to Him, looking to Christ. Why? Because He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. If we lose focus of who Christ is and what He has done in our lives, we will get lost on this race. But when we look to Christ, everything else will fall into place. When we look to Christ, all other things will be right. Here's another application. If Christ created the universe and He sustains the universe, He is not far. He is near. And if you're broken, if if you are in distress today, if you've come here and you've said, I'm I'm just picking myself up from my own bootstraps, I'm just going to go, but I don't even know why I'm going. Let me remind you, friend, God is not far from you. God can hear you. God sees you. God wants you to come to Him. He wants wants to be with you in the middle of your brokenness. Psalm 23, it is not that we will not walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but what matters is that when we do, He is with us. 
So friend, if you are broken, if you are saddened, if you're struggling with your emotions, you may be there today, and you may be there for a long time. I don't deny that sometimes we struggle. But the promise that Christ makes is that you won't be there forever, and you won't be there alone. He will be with you. He has endured greater suffering than you have. He understands what it's like to suffer. And he walks with those who are his through their suffering. So this message of a Christ who is the sustainer of creation is a message of hope for you. Don't suffer alone. And here's a great way that we can help you. One of the ways that God demonstrates his nearness is through his church. Be with us. I, I always do a plug for our Wednesday evening prayer service. Come pray with us. We'll pray for you. We'll walk with you through suffering. Come know this God who is the creator of all things, but who is not far, who is near, who is here, who is willing to walk with you through pain and suffering. Okay, so Jesus is Lord over the whole universe. But whatever is Jesus Lord over, He's Lord over the church. What a transition, right? Lord over the universe and then over the church. Why not government first? It is true that He's Lord over the government. No king is a king unless the Lord appoints them to be king. Uh, why not think of... Uh, why not think of other great things? Nations, right? Uh, why not think of great institutions? And here's why. Here's why Paul goes from universe to church. Because one day governments will be no more. One day nations will be no more. One day all other institutions will be no more. But the church will be victorious. The church will always be. And why is the church victorious? Because the church is united with Christ. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. That means everything that is true of Christ is true through imputation of the church. And what is true of Christ? Look at verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Friends, to be united with Christ means to experience the fullness of God. It means that we are one with God by faith. This is what Paul expresses also in Ephesians 1.3. By the way, Colossians and Ephesians are parallel letters. Paul likely wrote them at the same time. Okay, so we see, we'll see a lot of overlapping themes in these two letters. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Everything that is heavenly is ours. Everything that is in the heavenly places belongs to us. Why? Because we are in Christ. Did you catch that? Where is, where is the location of the blessing? In Christ. He has blessed us in Christ. Union with Christ gives us all heavenly things. 
We also see this reality in baptism, don't we? We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a picture of our union with God. It is also true, Peter says this in, first, in, in Acts 2, that baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. Right? So if you believe Jesus and you haven't been baptized, can I talk to you about this? Because baptism is a symbol, but it's not merely a symbol. Baptism is obedience. And we must be baptized to proclaim visibly, right? To proclaim visibly to others that a sinner can be made one with the Holy God. So I would love to talk to you about baptism. If, if you wonder about the biblical teaching of baptism, I would love to talk to you about that. Come find me at the end of the service and we can talk more about that. My prayer, we pray with the staff every Tuesday. We're reminded to pray with the staff every Tuesday. Lord, give us baptisms. Give us men and women who will proclaim that they believe in Christ and are by faith united with Christ. One of the greatest blessings that is highlighted in this passage is hope. Christian hope rests in the assurance of the resurrection of the dead. The assurance that life goes beyond the grave. Verse 18 says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That means he was the first to resurrect with his eternally glorified body. Others before him died and were resurrected, but they died again. And the Christ, the Christ, as he is today, will never die. But he is the firstborn, which means that others will be born in the same way as well. You and I, who are trusting in Christ, will one day die if the Lord tarries, but we'll live again. And when we live again, we'll live eternally with a glorified body. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, right? So, so you know harvest comes. And you're looking at that beautiful mango tree, and you see that first mango, the first mango growing, and you're saying it's going to be a good year. This is the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the hope that we too will be resurrected. So just as Christ conquered death, everyone who trusts in him will also have victory over death. Now, friends, this have in some ways been difficult days for our church. Ray and Ruby Gates, who were members of our church for a long time, have gone to be with the Lord in this past month. By the way, we'll have a memorial service for both of them this coming Saturday at 10.30 a.m. in this place. We'd love, to, we'd love for you to be here honoring this faithful, uh, this faithful couple um, this coming weekend, our, our brother Harry Sauter is, is really nearing death right now. And, and he has faithfully served this church for decades. These are difficult days. These are difficult days for us. But for a believer, friends, difficult will never mean hopeless. There's a difference. 
There's a difference between walking through difficulty but, and being hopeless. Paul encourages the Thessalonians who are struggling with this difficulty and hopelessness. And he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, Paul is not saying that you may not grieve, but that you may not grieve without hope. Why? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So... When we are in heaven, we'll rejoice with our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. So death right now is a temporary separation. So we live in hope, knowing that our union will once again be united with those whom we love. So take heart, have hope. Now verse 20 almost seems like it's out of place, doesn't it? We've already addressed God as creator of all things. And I seriously contemplated explaining this verse with my first point, that God is reconciling the whole universe to himself. Sometimes verses can be grouped together thematically, and that's fine. But I thought about this a lot this week, and I actually think there is a clear connection between these two verses. Between, between these two concepts of the church being reconciled to God and also the universe being reconciled to God. Just, just think with me a little bit. This verse actually introduces something new, a new concept. God is creator of all things, and he's also redeemer of all things. It says, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is an all-encompassing reconciliation. All things on heaven and on earth. This would include all humans, and this would include the entire universe. So is this passage teaching that everyone will be saved at the end? Is this passage saying that the teaching known as universalism is true? Of course not. We know by the whole teaching of the Bible that some will be saved, but some will be judged. Reconciliation here means that all things will be set right. You know, Jesus created the universe in the beginning, and the universe was corrupted. And He is now setting it back right to its place. Non-believers will be forgiven. Reconciliation. Non-believers will recognize that Jesus is Lord, though they will be judged. Paul says in Philippians 2.10 that all, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. No one, no one, believer or unbeliever, will be able to not bow their knees to Christ. The reconciliation is cosmic. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, and also propitiatory, meaning it is through the blood of Christ. So this passage is saying Christ died to reconcile the whole universe, the whole cosmos to himself. He created all things, and all things were then in bondage to the curse of sin. 
And Christ is now doing away with the curse. Friends, this universe does not function the way it was designed to function. Disasters, destruction, disease, distress, death. Christ did not create the universe to have these things. He created it and it was very good. And now the only hope this universe has is that Christ would redeem it. That he would recreate it. And when Christ redeems the universe, when will that be? Well, that would be once the church is redeemed. So the whole universe, creation, is groaning together. It's crying out to Christ, saying, Return and redeem your church. Creation is crying to us, saying, Persevere in missions and evangelism, because once all of the children of God are revealed, we will be made new. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. For the creation was eager, awaits eager, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is this? Once the whole church will be revealed. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption, and, to, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Once the church is fully redeemed, creation will be made new. Once the church is united with Christ, we will experience also a new creation. Now, the past two years have been unsettling, right? The world is not functioning the way it's supposed to. Is Christ not in control? He is. He is. And we must not take our theology from our very unreliable news sources. Our theology comes from this word, and last time I checked, in this word, Christ is King. So we as Christians must not live in fear. We live in faith. Because our king reigns. And not one of the events that have taken place in the past two years have escaped the sphere of his sovereignty. So friends, Christian cannot live as though God is not in control. He is. We live wisely, but not in fear. We, we must be wise, but we, not, we must not let fear plague us. Jesus sits on his throne, and therefore we live in peace, even if the world knows no peace. Finally, Paul points us towards the lordship of Christ over you. Jesus is Lord over you. And, and this passage has functioned this way. Creation is as though the house lights are on in the entire building. Christ is Lord over all. But, but then the church, it's as though we're only having the spotlight on. I'm sorry, the stage lights on. But then you, Paul puts the spotlight on you. And now this is specific. He says, Christ is Lord over you. So this is not just theoretical theology, friends. Look at verse 20, you, and you, 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
Christians must always remember their condition prior to Christ. We were not at peace with Christ. We were alienated and hostile. We were not indifferent. We were enemies. We were opposed to the truth, and all of our practices were evil. Do you believe this? Truly, do you believe that Christ saved you from the pit of destruction? Do you believe that Jesus saved you when you did not want to be saved? It is Christ's intervening work that changes our destiny. This is a good reminder for parents. Our children, until they come to know Christ, are alienated and hostile towards Christ. As cute as they are, do not be deceived. Our goal in parenting is not to create Christianized pagans. Our goal in parenting is that faith would be born in our children. Our goal in parenting is that our children would know and understand the gospel and that they would love Jesus Christ and wholly depend on Him. And friends, how I wish I could put that truth in my son's heart. But I can't. So I have two tools. I can teach him the gospel. And I can pray for him. Parents, if you have not started doing that, Today is the day that you must begin doing that. Pray that the Lord would grab a hold of your children's hearts and would transform them so that they would go from those who are rebellious towards God to those who are worshipers of God. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before Him. Christ died so we may live. That's what this is saying. But, we don't, but, but He doesn't just cause us to live an empty life, a shallow life. He calls us to a better life. He equips us to live a, holeless, a holy, blameless, above reproach life. Did you notice in the passage that God is both reconciling us to Christ, but He also is transforming us through Christ. This is, friends, why we constantly need to check our hearts for pride. Pride and boasting robs Christ of the glory that He is due. It is He who reconciled us to God, and He is the one who is transforming us today. He began the work, and He will finish us. Christ is not just involved with salvation. He's involved with sanctification. He does the whole thing from beginning to end. We approach Him by faith and humility. Anyone, anyone who does not understand this does not understand grace. Grace should never lead us to pride, but to thankfulness and humility. To be proud of something you have received by grace is to misunderstand grace. Do you frequently check your heart for pride? Do you ask the Lord, Lord, reveal in my heart where pride lives? We all have it, friends. It's not a question of whether or not we have it. It's a question of how much and how does it demonstrate itself. 
We must always be checking ourselves so that we can be humble worships, worshipers of Christ. But now, we close this section with a warning. And we must not look over warnings in the Bible. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Christians must recognize that genuine faith perseveres. Genuine faith leads a Christian from beginning to end. This is why Paul says we need to be stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. These are the kind of people who finish long races. They are stable, steadfast. They don't shift from the gospel. So hear this warning. Persevere with the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Do not turn away from the faith. Now notice that Paul refers to the faith. Not to a faith. Not to your faith. He says the faith. The faith that has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. The faith that is the fruit of his ministry. Do you know that how often I have a conversation and and people say, oh, I'm just glad so-and-so believes in something. This is not what we're called to do. We're not called to believe in something. We're called to believe in the faith. Nike had an ad a few, like a year ago, that said, believe something. Well, that's, that's a bad advice. It's a bad advice to believe something wrong, something that is not true. Something evil or wicked. Faith that is not in Christ is bad. We are not just to believe in something, we are to believe in the truth. The one truth that will bring us to God. As Jude 3 says, we are to believe in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And friends, this is the faith we're called to rest our lives on. Faith in the gospel, faith in the promises of God. Christ is king, and he is a faithful king. So we must place our faith in his faithfulness. We must place our faith in Christ. Friends, we're called to persevere. But we must know that we persevere in our faith because God perseveres in his promises. This is where we rest. This is where we strive. This is where Central Baptist Church, the focus of our ministry, will be. Remembering and living by the promises of a faithful King, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. May we live in light of this. Would you pray with me? Father, we worship you as the one true living God. Lord, we praise you because you are king over the whole universe. We do not have a God who is weak. We do not have a God who is powerless. Lord, may we not confuse your patience for weakness. You will return and you will judge the righteous and the wicked, the living and the dead. Lord, would you put the fear of God in our hearts and would you cause us to love you 
live in light of the fact that Christ gave himself up for us. May the sons of God be revealed soon. Father, we pray that Jesus would return and redeem all those who are his, so that we may live with him forever in a universe that is made right, truly worshiping him and imaging you perfectly. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.